We come to the book of Jude. This is our third of what we anticipate being seven visits to this little book, but it is so pithy. You're going to love it. Jude is named after, the book of Jude is named after the man Jude, who is one of Jesus' half-brothers and like the other natural children of Joseph and Mary who were born after his supernatural virgin birth. Jude did not come to faith until after the resurrection of his older brother Jesus. Eventually, both Jude and James, another of the half-brothers, rose to be respected leaders in the first century church, and uh, James was the main spokesman and leader at the church in Jerusalem, and Jude, God used to write this next-to-last book of the Bible. This letter was written probably around A.D. 75 or 80. I think it stands wisely as the next-to-last book of, <coughs> of the Bible. I'll never forget speaking in uh, uh, Russia one day, and I said, uh, let's uh, look at Jude, the next to last book in your Bible, and I got a very polite but pointed elbow from our translator who said, it's not the next to last book in the Russian Bible. <laughs> uh, it isn't. They order, they order the books differently, and there's a logic to their system too, but this one I think belongs right best right where it is. Um, Peter earlier wrote his two epistles. And in Second Peter, he warned that part of Satan's strategy would be to infiltrate the church with corruptors, disruptors, and false teachers. And Jude was now seeing it happen. And so he wrote his circular letter to help his Christian friends avoid as much grief as possible from the influence of these people. Now this, um, this is not an easy book. It's actually, it's not a very pleasant book until you get to the last two verses, which are really cool. Well, I think verse 1 was pretty pleasant as well. Because this book deals with apostasy, which means falling away. It deals with people who appear to be Christians, but uh, they cease to act like it. And some of them even go on and deny the faith, which is rather popular these days, and you have to do it apparently on Twitter, which is a good reason not to tweet. But that's another subject, and that's a personal opinion. Uh, Apostates are people who have never known Christ, but they pretend to. Some of them are deceived, and they, they think they are. Some of them actually know what they're doing, but whether they know what they're doing or not, they infiltrate churches to spread their own ideas, which are ultimately Satan's doctrines, or at least undermining the doctrine of Scripture. Jude explains, and um, Scott expounded to us from last Sunday, or last Sunday, these two verses, Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So he says, I I want to write to you about our joy of being together in this common life of Christ, our our common salvation, but i got to focus on this one thing. Why? Next verse. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. 
ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. That's the polysyllabic word that Scott got to lay on you last week. See the word license in there? It's the idea that grace is a license to sin. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now there's the key phrase there, the faith once for all handed down to the saints. The faith is the collected teaching of the Bible. It is the 66 books of the Bible without error, without contradiction, proven to be God-breathed, attested to be inspired by the church from the beginning of their distribution. They've stood the test of time and nothing is being added to them. But people have crept in. That means people had already gotten into the fellowship who didn't buy into the faith once for all handed down. And just was as true among those early congregations in the first century, we can be certain it has happened here, and it will continue to happen. So Jude wrote this circular letter because these people had now crept in. Peter warned they were coming, now they're here. And this has been going on for almost 2,000 years. Now I said I really like the placement of Jude next to last in the Bible. I want to give you a little um, bit of the bigger picture of early church history to help you fully appreciate how Jude fills a crucial place in the unfolding of the history of the early church. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended. And he made a wonderful promise in chapter 1, verse 8, which I'll show you in a few minutes. Then in, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the believers exactly as Jesus had promised. Peter preached the gospel. He called everyone to repent and believe in Christ, to turn to Him in faith. 3,000 people believed immediately. You go on in Acts 3 through 7, the gospel continued to spread all through Jerusalem. The enemies of the gospel said they've, they've filled the whole city with their doctrine. I think that's hyperbole, but it's also a pretty good compliment. The gospel was preached and thousands more came to faith. That section of the only book of history in the New Testament, the book of Acts, that section ends with uh, the stoning of Stephen, one of the first deacons who became an evangelist and was martyred for preaching Christ. And at his stoning, there was a young man named Saul, who was part of the murderous mob, held the, held the coats for the other guys that were throwing the stones. Then you get to Acts chapter 8. An incredible thing happened there. I guess it isn't incredible because it, it happened and it happened and recorded credibly. But the apostle Philip took the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews. And when Jews would travel between Galilee in the north, where the town of Nazareth was, where Jesus was born, and Jerusalem in the south, they would add a whole day to their trip, cross the Jordan River twice, just to avoid setting foot in Samaritan territory. That's how, uh, how, how opposed to each other they were. Well, Philip took the gospel there, and many believed. Word flew back to Jerusalem. They heard that 
the Samaritans had heard the gospel and they'd believed. And so they sent no less than Peter and John, the two heavyweights among the original apostles. And they got there and they validated the message that Philip had preached exactly the same message that was being preached to the Jews. He, they prayed for the Samaritan Christians to receive the Holy Spirit just as they had in Jerusalem. It happened and there was verification that Jewish and Samaritan believers in Christ were united. Then we get to Acts chapter 9, another big event. That man Saul, who had gone on from the stoning of Stephen to become the chief persecutor of Christians in the region, he was converted miraculously. And Saul, who then came to be called Paul, quit persecuting Christians. And instead, he began going around to synagogues preaching that Christ, Jesus, is the Messiah and showing proof from the Scriptures. Then Paul went to Jerusalem, we see at the end of chapter 9. And uh, by the way, they were pretty antsy about him coming. Who? He's saying, what? But he got introduced, Barnabas introduced him, and um, he became acquainted with the other apostles. And they were on the same team from then on. In Acts chapter 10 was the next huge leap of the gospel. God used Peter to preach the gospel to a group of Gentiles. I mean, Gentiles. I mean, they hated the Samaritans who were half-breed Jews. The Gentiles? Oh, the uncircumcised? Oh, Peter preached the gospel to them. And the whole group believed And they received the Holy Spirit, just like happened in Jerusalem. They were baptized just as it was with the first Jewish believers and with the Samaritans. And now Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles are all united in Christ. In Acts 11 and 12, the next amazing development, the Gentile church in the city called Antioch. There's a couple of different Antiochs, but this is one where the gospel had gone early in the ministry to Gentiles, and it was a predominantly Gentile church. It became the first Gentile church to uh, train, equip, support, send, and welcome back missionaries. The church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, I'll leave it to you to read, uh, leave it to you to read the rest of the book of Acts, but it traces the spread of the gospel primarily to Gentiles, fulfilling exactly what Jesus had promised. I said he made a wonderful promise just before he ascended. It's Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, started in chapter 2, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, that's the area around Jerusalem, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Your address probably says Boise, Idaho, USA, and a zip code, and then it should say, in the remotest parts of the earth. The gospel has come even to us 21 centuries later on a different continent, in a different language, in a different 
culture. What a glorious thing it is. Well, by about A.D. 68, the, the church included Jews and Samaritans and a much greater number of Gentiles. And during the final years of the Apostle Paul's ministry, Peter wrote two letters that are included in the Bible, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And in that final one, 2 Peter, he warned that everywhere that there were churches, Satan would plant infiltrators who would secretly introduce corrupt doctrines. We know that Paul made three missionary journeys to Gentile territories. Uh, Then he made a fourth one at government expense. That's when he went as a prisoner to to Rome. We know that he was imprisoned in Rome for a couple of years after having been uh, imprisoned in Sancria for over a year before that, uh, not Sancria, Caesarea. And then um, he, uh, he was released. He traveled a little bit and he was re imprisoned and eventually martyred. Probably in the year AD 68. We can't be really dogmatic about that, but it also doesn't matter. We know that between the first and second imprisonments, Paul placed Timothy in the city of Ephesus to teach and preach there, to combat false doctrines that were showing up there. Ephesus is arguably the, the largest of the uh, churches in the Gentile world in that first century. And uh, it even became the, the headquarters where we believe the Apostle John lived until his uh, exile. Likewise, having put Timothy in Ephesus, Paul sent Titus to Crete to do the same thing. To, uh, it's, he just subtly says, stop the mouths of the ones who are teaching wrongly and to appoint elders in every city. Then it came about that Paul and Peter were both martyred. I just read this week. I'd never heard this before. I've only been at this for half a century. I never heard before the theory that Peter and Paul were martyred on the same day. We can't prove that unless you find a newspaper article from the next day explaining that both of them were were martyred. Um, People love to get sentimental about stuff like that. That doesn't matter either, but they were both martyred. And not long afterward, that was probably in 68, Jerusalem and the Jewish temple were destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. The Bible books written, written after that, the only Bible books written after Peter and Paul died are Jude and the five books written by the Apostle John. John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. So uh, this occupies that unique place, if you will. Jude's message is the battle is on. What Peter warned about was happening, and it has been happening ever since. In one of Peter's letters, the first one, he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, we're not going to stand at the great white throne of judgment. That's at the end times. But What he says, God is going to be working with his people, in his household, in his family, in his church. He says that judgment is to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, 
What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? He's saying if, the, if God is so holy and he cares so much about the holiness of his children that he will actually discipline his own children, what's he going to do to the ones who reject him? That's his rhetorical question. Peter's point is it's far better to endure suffering in the name of Christ far better to underdo, uh, undergo the Lord purging and strengthening His church than to endure the eternal suffering of unbelievers in the lake of fire. And God so strongly and painfully judges His church, which He loves, so what will be the fury of His wrath on the ungodly? Now, in the case of the ones that Jude referred to, they had a particular bent in the kind of teaching that Jude was observing. They went overboard with the grace of God. They practiced and set the example of licentiousness. They were the same kind of people that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin So that grace may increase. I mean, don't we want God to be glorified? Isn't God glorified when He shows His grace? Doesn't He show His grace to sinners? So we should sin more so God will get more grace. So He'll get more glory. What's His answer? May it never be. That's the best English translation we can do. The Greek is may genoita. It's such a strong expression of no way, absolutely not. Stop your mouth. Don't go a word farther. That's kind of what it means. It's a very strong expression expression. The, the King James translators translated it, God forbid. It's neither the word God nor the word forbid, but that was the idiom they thought of. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live, it, live in it? Now we're considering Jude who was dealing with some teachers who were practicing and teaching licentiousness, or uh, Scott gave you another polysyllabic word last week, antinomianism. Uh, No law, feeling that the the law of God has no claim on your life um, whatsoever. Um, That was the teaching that Jude was dealing with. Those who practice licentiousness tend to minimize some of the things in the Bible or just to ignore certain things that it teaches, especially the ones they, the, the parts they don't like. There were also those, though, in the first century, not the ones mentioned by Jude, But there were those who pervert the sufficiency of Scripture on the other end, adding to what it teaches. That was just as much a problem in the early church. And as a matter of fact, that problem came earlier than the licentiousness which alarmed Jude. We're studying in our daily emails the book of Galatians, which is used to defend the purity of the gospel against some teachers who were adding to the gospel. Yeah, we want you to receive Jesus, and then, welcome to the family, Gentiles. Now go get circumcised. Now start keeping all of the Jewish rituals. Now start bringing your sacrifices to the, to, to the temple. Now, now keep all the Jewish holidays. And that was firmly refuted at the uh, Jerusalem council. So some took away, some added. I, I think you see the point. Satan infiltrates the church with people who bring influences that are designed to corrupt 
genuine faith in the Bible. Some negate what the Bible says, others add to it. Proverbs, I think it's chapter 3, do not add to God's word. You will be found to be a liar. Okay? Book of Revelation, right at the end. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecies of this book, he will have added to him all of the plagues written in this book. In other words, there is the faith once for all handed down to the faith, uh, handed down to the, to the saints. Believe it. Trust it. Mine its riches. Live by it. Don't add. Don't take away. Now, the adding and the taking away, they, those appeal to different people. Some like to feel like they're really working up a spiritual sweat and working their way to heaven. They love that legalism stuff. Some just want to do whatever they want to do. They don't understand that Christ didn't set you free to do what you want to do. He set you free to do what you should do, to do the right thing. So Jude says, I wanted to write in general about the doctrine of salvation, but I, I had to contend to this part about the fact that the war is on. Contend earnestly for the purity and integrity of Scripture. The faith that was once for all handed down. That is the composite teaching of the Bible. Now there are many views on many facets of theology. There are some secondary doctrines that Bible-believing, gospel-preaching people um, may have some little differences about, but we all believe there is one set of truths. They are the faith, once for all, delivered. Charles Spurgeon, famous in the 19th century as he was a faithful preacher in the midst of what came to be known as the downgrade controversy where people were undermining the authority of Scripture and all, and all of that. He wrote a book cleverly titled The Downgrade Controversy in which he said, among other things, commonly it is found in theology that that which is true is not new, and that which is new is not true. It was once for all handed down. It has everything we need. Second Timothy 3 and 4. It will equip us for every good work. Second Peter chapter 1. It is uh, everything we need for life and godliness. It gives us the true knowledge of His Son. So the book of Jude is here to embolden us to constantly deepen our resolve to understand what the Word of God says and to contend for it earnestly against any attack of those who seek to take away from it or add to it. Now today, this little slice, three verses, is going to give you three examples of whom God destroys. This is the if you want to say it this way, this is the scared straight part of this book. I want you to see, says Jude, how serious a thing it is to, to, to discount the authority and the accuracy and the sufficiency of the Word of God. I want you to see what God does to those who do things like that. So, I'm going to give you three examples. Exhibit A, unbelievers in the wilderness, verse 5. Exhibit B, angels out of bounds. They're not in the outfield. I want you to know. Angels out of bounds. Verse 6. And then exhibit C, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
in verse 7. Jude is going to, and you'll see it today and in following um, parts of Jude, uh, Jude draws heavily upon the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and he draws heavily on things that were common knowledge to his Jewish Christian readers and to the early Gentile Christians who learned a lot from their Jewish predecessors. He's going to emphasize a crucial point in these next three verses. Just looking like you are blessed by God doesn't prove that you are. Just hanging around with people blessed by God doesn't prove that you are one of them. All right, exhibit A. Unbelievers in the wilderness, verse 5, says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now I'm going to also read that to you from the new Legacy Standard Bible because there's one small translation question. It could go either of two ways, and my two favorite translations do it two ways. Legacy Standard Bible says, Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now in case you glazed over, the difference is in where the word once is, and whether it's translated once or once for all. Uh, That Greek word um, can go either with, though you know all things, that's how the New American Standard did it, though you know all things once for all. That would be referring back to the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. Or it can go with the word saved, having once saved a people. The, the, The Greek technically allows for either of those translations. It is where that Greek word hapax is placed in the sentence that um, nudges me toward going with the Legacy Standard Bible rendering that the emphasis is that even after providing for Israel to escape from Egypt at once, God held them accountable to live in light of His truth. Either one is fine. You can get to heaven either way. So this phrase, though you know all things, is interesting. Whether you put the word once with that or not, he's emphasizing the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And by the way, that's that same word, hapax, translated in verse 3 that we have here in verse 5. In verse 5, Jude was taking another poke at people who claim to receive further revelation beyond what God has given us in Scripture. He's also poking at those who believe that they can pick and choose which parts of the Bible to believe. There is a a very popular, highly poisonous teaching that's been running around in the evangelical world for about 30 years, imported from some other corners of theology, that God speaks outside of the Bible. You can hear a famous radio preacher explain to you how God told him to pull into this store, led him exactly to which turkey to buy for Thanksgiving. Ah, Glad he had a nice Thanksgiving. I hope it was yummy. 
But don't imply to God's people that they're a bunch of spiritual idiots because they can't read the code that says which turkey to buy. God has told us, what are the words? Everything we need for life and godliness. And the Greek word means everything. He has told us that is the faith, singular, one group of teaching, once for all delivered to the saints. That's his word. He speaks through his word. His sheep hear his voice, which is in his word. And they know him and they follow him. And he keeps them safe. There's another idea that, that says that you know, prayer is a two-way communication. That's exactly right, except for it's exactly wrong. By definition, prayer is one-way communication. Prayer is the inferior, subordinate one speaking to the superior one who is in charge. And that one speaks through his word. We speak to him in prayer. And, and, and I know what people are thinking. You know, you might be thinking, I could save my wife a lot of trouble if I'd stop and get a turkey. Oh, there's a store. I wonder what all the turkeys are. Oh, there it is in that aisle right there. Which one should I take? Oh, there's one that's sticking out of the, 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 the cooler, but I'll take that one. That's fine. And if you love your wife that much, good on you. Savor the trouble. But don't claim that that's revelation from God. He he provides all the time. He knows all of our needs even before we ask. He causes all things to work together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. But that's his providence. It is not uh, him speaking to you. So to grow in Christ... You don't need more revelation. You just need to understand what has already been given. Sometimes you need to be reminded of it. And sometimes you need to be nudged and encouraged and and, and helped to obey it. Sometimes you even need to be corrected and get back to, to obeying it. Peter made a big deal about reminding He says, I'm writing these things to you again because I want to remind you and I want to remind you so that after I've reminded you, you'll remember it so that next time I won't have to remind you about it. We hang on to the one body of truth. Now, here's the analogy that Jude makes from verse 5. About two million people left Egypt with Moses. Try to picture that. It's only God could do that. But an entire generation, except for two individuals named Joshua and Caleb, never made it to the land that God promised to them. And Jude's point is pretty simple. There are many who claim to have received Christ's forgiveness. They claim to have been set free from their sins but they don't really know Him. The point of this verse is that merely claiming to know Christ, claiming to follow God, claiming to be part of the people of God, doesn't mean that you really are. could be a phony. A lot of people were willing to accept the deliverance part when they were set free from Egypt. Said, okay, okay, you um, you can go to this land that is beautiful, 
flowing with milk and honey, or you can stay where you are in a desert climate and keep making bricks. Your choice. Well, let me think about that. Okay, I'll leave here. But then God has the audacity to suggest you need to do some things in light of that. And they were unwilling to continue believing after they were set free. They wouldn't do as God said. So he destroyed them because they failed to believe, even though they were associated with the people of God. The second example is another case of the terror of God's judgment upon those who do not accept his ways. In this case, it's angels. Look at verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, I said, God's given us his word. We need to ask him for wisdom. I believe his word. I've studied his word hard, and I continue to do that. And I asked him for wisdom this week. Lord, how do I teach this verse after I wrote my master's thesis on this verse and the next verse. And God gave me wisdom. He said, put a cork in it. Tell them what Jude says. Okay, I will. And if you, uh, if you have a serious case of insomnia sometime, uh, get a hold of me. I can email you an electronic copy of my thesis. It'll probably fix your problem. It's not the most titillating reading in the world. All right. Key phrase, these angels did not keep their own domain. They didn't stay in the realm where angels belong. Angels are non-corporeal beings and they live in a spiritual realm that we can't see and we've never experienced. But it's where they are. But they abandoned their proper abode. That means that they left the proper realm of angelic existence and entered a realm that didn't belong to them. Now, these are fallen angels, obviously, and that's what we call demons in the Bible. And this says they crossed a line and they incurred the severest of judgments. Now, what's he talking about? Well, the incident to which he ultimately refers is recorded in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Satan persuaded a group of fallen angels, demons, to take on human form, or if not that, to possess willing evil men, to cohabitate with women, and produce some sort of corrupted offspring. Best guess is that this was to uh, try to disrupt the, the line of descendancy to the Messiah. Well, they did produce exceptionally wicked demonic offspring. And this sin was so gross that the demons who propagated it have been punished more immediately, more permanently, and more severely than other fallen angels. It says they've been kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment. In other words, they got a life sentence and they never die. So it's eternal. They are never getting out. Most demons roam free. You see encounters with them in the Gospels. Some demons are imprisoned, 
but they are going to be set free. They're going to be imprisoned until a time in the, the 70th week of Daniel. We also call that the tribulation, the seven years leading up to the, the second coming of Christ. If you don't know what 70th week of Daniel is, well, you missed too many Wednesday nights. Uh, Scott just finished that in Daniel chapter 9. You can go back and review all those things and join us in, in chapter 10 now. But those demons who have been temporarily in prison are going to be released. They're going to be unleashed on mankind as part of God's wrath before the second coming of Christ. But the ones mentioned in this passage are imprisoned now and they will stay in prison and they'll be released only for their moment of permanent judgment after which they will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Now that's a bunch of stuff. One of the reasons that I chose the, the um, uh, dissertation or the, the thesis topic that I did is that I had to go to Genesis chapter 6. That meant I had to take my pathetic Hebrew skills and work really, really hard and get a lot of help to do a, a Hebrew exegesis project. I had Jude and these other verses I'm about to quote you in the New Testament, so I had to work really, really hard with a New Testament Greek exegesis project, and it has to do with angels, so I had to study the whole doctrine of angelology and demonology. I actually put a hold on working on my thesis to take the time to write and develop and teach a course on angelology so that I could figure this stuff out. There's a lot of stuff here. Jude is not a goosebump book for these wonderful, sweet, warm, toasty blessings. As I said, it's the scared straight part of this. Well, these demons that did this are mentioned two other places in the New Testament, both from Peter. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now you notice that's not the end of a sentence. A couple of things there. Notice the context there is the time of the flood, which is Genesis chapter 6. So we know there's a, there's a connection there. And his point is, he didn't spare them. You think you're going to be spared if you reject what God says? Another interesting thing is it says, he cast them into hell that is the translation of an interesting Greek word. It's not the normal word for hell, Hades. It's a word, it actually comes from mythology, and it's the idea of a prison for spirits. It's a place called Tartarus. So I have said this many times, I can't stand tartar sauce. So I picture that place as this steaming, boiling vat of tartar sauce that they have to dog paddle around in for all the time until their judgment. It's probably even worse than tartar sauce, but we don't know. What else do we know about them? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. For Christ also died for sins once for all. By the way, that's that Greek word again. He died for sins once for all, never to be repeated, one sacrifice. The just for the unjust, the only righteous man, the only innocent man that has ever lived died on behalf of the guilty ones. He did it as the just one for the unjust ones in order that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the 
spirits now in prison. Those are those angels who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. That's how we know that that's the situation. That's the sin referred to. During the construction of the ark in which the few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. In the time between when Jesus' body was in the tomb and when he rose again, in his spirit he went and he made a proclamation to those angels. Don't you wish you had a transcript of what he said? Well, we have Jude 6 and 7. Now, rather than taking a great big side trip into all of that stuff, I'm going to try to keep our focus on Jude, but I do want you to know we have copies of an article that I wrote years ago for our radio program called The Strangest Sin of All Time. You can find it on our website if you are crafty and tenacious enough, or you can get a hard copy in the literature rack out by uh, the front door. The point of verse 6 is that God deals especially severely with those who oppose His ways. He eliminated those who did not believe among the chosen people of Israel. He judges angels who oppose Him, and He judges the worst of them most severely. The next verse is Jude's third example of the terrible nature of His judgment. Exhibit C, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's very closely connected with Exhibit B. Grammatically in the text it is connected because there's a pronoun in verse 7 that has its antecedent back in verse 6. Here it is. Just as, so just as in a similar way, there's there's a parallel here. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, these what? These angels who sinned. They did something similar. What was similar about it? They indulged in gross immorality. That's the word for sexual sin with a prefix on it that makes it yuck. Worse than, I mean, how can you say there's normal sexual sin? Because it's all abnormal. But this is worse. It crosses a line indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What's he alluding to there? Well, you can read about that in Genesis 18 and 19. God sent the um, angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate Christ, and two other angels to visit uh, Abraham and Lot. And um, as those men, those angels who were in human form went to Lot's house in the city of Sodom, the men of the city of Sodom tried to get to them for homosexual relationships. It's an ugly, ugly part of God's word. But it is very true. Here are new guys. And they, they remember they were going to assault Lot. And Lot made one of the stupidest statements any dad has ever made. But maybe he knew what he was doing. Here's the point. There was the same sin committed in opposite directions. 
those angels, those fallen angels in Jude 6, left their place in the created order in, to take advantage of men and women in a frenzy of lust. Sodom and Gomorrah, it was the same thing as these. It was reversed. It was the men in a um, crazed frenzy of lust wanting to go after the angels. And now they didn't know they were angels, but it's the same thing. Do you see the parallel? Same thing both ways. The point is you cannot accept God's blessings but ignore His morality. Israel failed to obey God's word. Those demons tried to mess up God's plan for the world. Sodom and Gomorrah bought into the world's immorality and God judged them all. Now, I said this is supposed to be the scared straight passages here. What are you supposed to learn? Well, the vote against entering the land that God promised to Israel was 10 to 2. They, they got to Kadesh Barnea, supposed to be the gateway into the land, and they, they didn't need more revelation, <laughs> but because God had told them what they wanted them to do. But they decided, okay, before we go in, let's be wise. Let's, let's send some guys in to spy out the land. So they got 12 guys, put their trust in them, sent them in, and they came back and they said, oh, wow, you ought to see that place. Look at these bunches of grapes. We need two guys with a pole across their shoulders to, to carry the bunches of grapes. The whole place is like that, to which everybody should be saying, wow, let's go. And they said, oh, but there's big guys in there, and they're mean, and they look like they can hurt us. We're not a trained army. And the 10 or the 12 voted 10 against 2 to not go in. They were, the ten were wrong, and they were acting out of fear rather than believing what God said. But the people followed the ten, and only those two were allowed ever to enter the land. So why is this here? To tell us to contend earnestly for the faith, and don't automatically go with the majority. As a matter of fact, if you're contending earnestly for the faith, you're going to almost always be in the minority in the world. We also know that evil men and women were willing to be accomplices for Satan when they were offered unbridled carnal pleasures and all the demons involved were imprisoned forever and the whole world except for eight adults alive at that time perished in the flood. This is here to tell us, contend earnestly for the faith. Don't seek the fleeting pleasures of sin. I love the description of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. He chose to obey God rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. Well said. Even more in our generation, people are not only secretly committing sexual sin, they're openly committing sexual sin. They're openly committing the most perverted of sexual sins. And now they're succeeding at getting the world to believe that it's normal. And they are demanding that we not only accept it as normal, but now we have to approve of it or we're the bad guys. 
Friends, we're at the end of Romans chapter 1. These are exciting days to live in which to contend earnestly for the faith. In the, not this previous presidential cycle, the one before that, that was the first time that one of the two major parties in the United States adopted the sins delineated in Romans 1, 18 through 22 and said, that's our platform. That's what we're for. You oppose us. You're the problem. Come on, we're going to make progress here. This is here to tell us, contend earnestly for the faith. Don't let the world wear you down until you compromise. If God does not judge this nation and all others who are going in the same direction, you've probably heard this before, if He doesn't judge us, He needs to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Three drastic examples of the doom that awaits people who lead others astray. So, here we are in Jude. How in the world can you spend seven sermons on one page? We're just getting going. You've seen three so far. What have you seen so far in Jude? Do you understand that in Christ, we saw in verse 1, you are called, beloved, and kept. Are you in Christ? Have you cried out to God and said, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm alienated from you. Please, forgive my sin. Come into my life. Make me into the person you intend me to be. That's who this book is for. So that we will contend earnestly for the faith. The second question is, will you contend earnestly for the faith? Not lots of different opinions about things. The faith. And do you see the lesson from the doom of false teachers? God never allows those who oppose Him or His people to go unpunished. He is very patient and very gracious. He always upholds truth and holiness. No one escapes His punishment except by fleeing to Christ, taking refuge in Him, which is where we stand. Let's pray. Father, thank You that um, in Christ... We need not fear judgment. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Even when you chasten us, it is out of your love for us. Father, help us to contend earnestly for the faith. And to do it speaking truth in love, but not compromising the truth. Not going along with the majority. Simply taking our stand. And as... Martin Luther said, I can do no other. Make it so in each of our lives, we pray, in the name of our wonderful Savior in whom we stand, Jesus Christ. Amen.